Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, the media show coming to you from 2SER on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation and right across Australia on the Community Radio Network. My name is Rafael Garcia. Has the 60 Minutes crew gone too far in trying to cover a mother's desperation to get her children back? Are abusive online comments targeting minorities? And the blog post mocking the ABC's industrial agreement that backfired. Joining me in the studio, Michael Safi from The Guardian. Hello, Michael. Hi, Raf. Daily Life's Jenny Noyce. Hello, thanks for having me. Thank you. And joining us on the line, Alana Schetzer from The Age. Hello, Alana. Hi. If you'd like to get in touch with us via Twitter, you can find us at 4th Estate AU. That's all letters, no numbers. 4th Estate AU, all letters, no numbers. But first, changes to metadata laws and a special provision for journalists is something we've discussed on this program before. Some fresh developments on The Guardian's Paul Farrell and the Australian Federal Police have just come to light. Michael, what happened? Uh, So my colleague Paul Farrell has secured an admission from the AFP, uh, the first of its kind, that... um the uh, that they in the course of investigating a story that he wrote, they accessed um, his metadata without a warrant. And is that something that could still happen under the current laws? No, it can no longer happen because when the government um, uh, basically broadened its capacity to do uh, to search people's metadata um, after an outcry, they introduced protections for journalists, and w- one of them was that in future they have to seek a warrant in order to do what they did um, when they're investigating Paul's story. And are there, are there any more details available on what exactly they were looking for? So Paul published a story in 2014. It was about um, uh, it was re- revealing that Australian ships went further into Indonesian waters and knew they were going there than had been previously revealed. Um, that was the subject, among, among many other stories, um, from a range of different media outlets, of um, an AFP investigation in a bit to try to figure out who within the public service, within wherever, had leaked to Paul um, that this had happened. So it was an attempt to try to trace back his his sources, presumably because uh, it was an extremely embarrassing story for the Defence Department. And so they wanted to figure out who was behind it. Sounds like that's one that we'll have to watch closely in the next few days. Four crew members from Channel 9's 60 Minutes program have been arrested in Lebanon after a botched attempt at kidnapping the children of an Australian woman. Reporter Tara Brown, producer Stephen Rice and two others ended up behind bars after the Beirut operation went wrong. Lebanese authorities claiming to have evidence of the network having paid for it. Just how crazy was this exercise in the first place? Jenny? Um, Well, it seems like a fairly... um, Yeah, I would say it's it's a pretty crazy exercise. I mean, um, but, you know, it's actually something that is quite... It's happening quite a lot across the world, these... um, when families have custody battles, but they happen across borders, um, you know, it, it's almost like a people smuggling business that, um, you know, if the laws of the country don't uh, provide for some sort of mediation between the parents, then um, they end up going outside the law and seeking help from these um what do they call themselves? Uh, some the sort child of child recovery, yeah, agencies. child child recovery operation, which sounds very uh, legitimate, but um, <laughs> I don't think it. I mean, it, you know, it operates outside the law. So, um, yeah, I mean, obviously, if the allegations are true um, about Channel Nine actually having involvement in financing the operation, um, and not just kind of bearing witness to something that's happened, then, you know, that's obviously a very serious um, allegation. 
Alana, commercial TV networks are known for paying for a lot of things. Where where should the line be drawn here? Checkbook journalism is something that exists, and a, a lot of the networks have been criticised uh, for in the past. I, I think just sort of going off what Jenny said before, I think there's a line where if a television crew journalists have access to something that's happening, they can observe and report upon. That's one thing. If they're paying money in order for that event to happen, that, that I think that's where it draws the line. Because if it wasn't without the money or the um, interference of of the TV crew, then this it appears that saying like this wouldn't have happened. So so that's when it gets very very blurry. That's when it's, they're creating their own news. Michael, is it okay for 60 Minutes to have paid for such an operation? Oh, I mean, definitely not. I, I think Alana has um, put her finger on the fact that the difference between observing and facilitating an event, I think, is is crucial. Um, if it's the case that uh, without the $115,000 that's been alleged to have been paid by 60 Minutes, um, none of this would have come about, then they are, I mean, directly responsible. And, and they're, they're players. They become players in the event rather than people who are observing it and there to report it. So I think that that's the basic distinction. If they've paid for it, then they have made a crime happen. It's not just that they've made some event happen that they're reporting on. They've actually um, paid for a criminal act to take place. You know, people were, were assaulted um, in that uh, event as the children were snatched. The grandmother of the child was knocked over. She claims that she was uh, pistol whipped. Um <laughs> So, you know, for, for a news organisation to um, put money behind that happening so that they can basically f- um, fabricate their own story, um, playing with people's lives, um, I think it's reprehensible. I guess that's why they're facing the courts now. But um, journalists are usually tasked with observing but not interfering with the story. And I think that's kind of the point that you're touching on there, Michael. Uh, We've discussed in the past in this program, for example, how difficult it can be for a journalist not to jump into the story, say, you know, if someone is injured right in front of them and, you know, there's the urge to help, but but they don't because they're there to just record what's happening. Have the 60 Minutes crew done exactly the opposite? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I can understand this in a situation where someone is injured in front of you. There's a very human impulse to go in there and help them. And I don't think you're crossing a journalistic line by, by doing that. But I think what they've done, what they're alleged to have done, um, is is very far from that, which is to actually um, facilitate and, and enable this event, which, uh, as, as Jenny rightly points out, was illegal under Lebanese law. Um, and to the question of how crazy this was... The grandmother that was allegedly pistol whipped, um, there's been the suggestion that she is related to uh, Nabi Berry, who's one of the senior Shia leaders in the country. Um, And I mean, that is incomprehensible that you would go into a country and attack someone who's related to one of the most powerful people in the place. It's, it's, you know, it's, I I can't imagine how that got through any sort of risk analysis on, on any side. Alana, are journalists allowed to pick and choose when they actually interfere with the story in this manner? Look, I think it's going to what Michael said. It's different when somebody is injured in front of you, when it's an ongoing event. If it's a bushfire, um, I think that's completely different. But, yeah, I, I think the pick and choose here, I mean, there are allegations that, that the that the TV crew had options to, to leave earlier or that there was an alternative to allow the mother um, to leave the country and allegedly those were not, um, options were not taken up because apparently it would have made, better TV to leave it as it is. So that's, yeah, it, it sounds very dodgy. 
But isn't this really a story about a mother trying to have her children back? And and if the kidnapping had worked, we would be looking at this completely differently? Alana? I think possibly, yes. I mean, you know, the reason why it's such a big story now is because it's gone completely wrong. But had this been successfully completed, had it all been wrapped up and, and edited nicely and then presented on television, it, it definitely would have been um, presented as, as heartwarming television, uh, you know, a mother reunited with, with her children. And and I think I, I was looking up earlier. I, I, I couldn't say for sure, but I'm pretty sure that something like this has happened before when there's been a, a documentary of a you know, child recovered overseas. Um, so absolutely, it's a fact that it's gone so wrong that we're now actually looking at the moral and legal aspect of it. And I think also one thing that um, hasn't really, you know, we're talking about a mother that's lost her children and wants to recover them, but, you know, this is a family um, and we haven't heard the father's side of the story. Um, well, not too much. No. Well, we've barely heard anything from him. Um, so I think you know, the way that it has been reported has very much been that the mother, that the children belong to the mother, but there's no question actually of um, the custody arrangements that perhaps, you know, or what went on before the father came and and took the children back to Lebanon, Mm. which he took them with the mother's consent. It's just that he didn't return them. But you know, whether they had a custody arrangement before then that he's broken is not, um, it hasn't really been um I mean, I, I must say, I think on that on that small point, I, I, I would disagree in the sense that I think the father has actually been extremely savvy about the way he's played this in that, I mean, he's spoken to The Guardian, he's spoken to... Um, to News Corp, and he's he's done a, a couple of interviews on Lebanese TV, and I wouldn't be surprised if he popped up on Australian TV in the next um, few days. And I've been surprised at the extent to which um, he has been able to shape the narrative around this. And I think as a as a Middle Eastern male, as as a, as a, as a Muslim Middle Eastern male who um, has taken a couple of, of of children to Lebanon, I think this could have gone a lot worse for him. And I think sixty minutes may have, if had they been able to successfully do this, sort of spin the story in a way that made him look bad. But I've been, perhaps impressed isn't the right word, but I've been surprised at the way that he's realised that this there's an information side, there's an information war side to this story, and he's been able to get out on the front foot while Sally Faulkner's in prison and present his side of, of the story to people. Jenny, your colleague Ruby Hamad um, from Daily Life as well has actually written a very interesting piece on, on where she claims that there's an element of white privilege here and that the 60 Minutes media team must have only been okay with this as the children were being saved from a non-Western country. What do you think of that? Um, well, I think that she makes um, some pretty valid points about um, the kind of conditions that have enabled this narrative of rescue um, to happen um, and and you know just the idea that an, that an Australian crew would go into another country would like fly in um, do a rescue mission break the laws of that country um, you know engage basically people smugglers to do this um, you know would they do that in some other country uh, the question is, you know, a country that, you know, Australians or white Australians kind of have, have respect for the rule of law in other countries. Um, you know, I think there is a question there of, of what kind of enabled people to think that they had the, that they were entitled to, um, 
you make this sort of news story happen. Alana, could you could you see this happening in another Western country? I could actually. I understand Ruby's um, take on the issue, and and I'm I'm a big fan of, of what she writes, but I think she's um, perhaps missed a point a little bit here. The reason why. Um, this has happened. This has happened in Lebanon is because that country has not. It's not a signatory to the Hague Convention, which basically says that a child that lives in country A must return to that country A if they've been taken out for a holiday or to visit relatives in country B, for example. So I, I think there may be an element of white privilege here, but I think the main issue is that this mother had no legal um, right to. To access her children, um, and again, you know, we, we we're not entirely clear of all the custody arrangements. But I think, you know, if if another Western country did not sign the Hague Convention, I I can absolutely see this happening in other places for sure. Yeah, I, I think I agree with Alana here that that obviously there's probably an element of white privilege to it. But I think the kind of more pressing issue is the kind of deep patriarchy of a country like Lebanon, where, where women do not have um, the right to make claims for their children that they, they would hear. Um, and the sort of, I guess you might say, kind of kind of arrogance of um, the, the husband in this situation to allegedly take his children um, to another country and from what the little we've heard, not give uh, his wife the chance to see them, apparently not even the chance to regularly speak with them, even on their, on their birthdays. Um, and so while white, white privilege... I'm sure is at play here. I think that the much more pressing thing to look at is um, the fact that a country like Lebanon, and clearly this this relationship um, was one where uh, Ali El Amin exercised a lot more power than than Sally Faulkner. Hmm. I mean, I think also uh, Ruby's article was not really addressing the family dynamic. And in fact, she mentioned in the article that you know you cannot blame the mother for doing whatever she felt she needed to do, but she was talking more about um, the choices of the 60 Minutes crew in, you know, staging, you know, if they have financed this um, rescue and and kind of, you know, having the sensationalist news story, um, that that story itself um, is is more about, you know, what where this white privilege idea comes from. Michael... I'd like to come to you on a slightly different um, point, but how much responsibility do you think should lie with the crew that went to Lebanon and how much with decision makers in Sydney? Look, I think it's a good question and that's one of the many things we don't know. I mean, what I'm really, one of the many you know, interesting aspects of this story is how was this approved by Channel 9? How did it... Um, who actually signed off on, on such an insane proposal? I mean, I think as journalists, we have to have an element of solidarity for, for other journalists who are you know, banged up in a Beirut prison for doing their jobs, albeit in a kind of fashion that we might think is a little bit um, dubious. But I think anyone with the knowledge of kind of how a news organisation works I mean, probably understands that it wasn't the camera crew who, who, would, who were making the decision to go. It would have come from the people who pulled the purse strings, basically. Um, and so if we were going to, you know, portion out blame, probably it more would lie with them than with the, um, you know, the people who actually went out and did the, did the work. You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're with me, Rafael Garcia, and I'm speaking to Michael Safi from The Guardian, Daily Life's Jenny Noyes, and Alana Schetzer from The Age. Daily Telegraph columnist Tim Blair has written a blog post mocking proposed domestic violence leave in the ABC's industrial agreement. Blair asked, is that why ABC staff work so few hours? 
because they are always recovering from the previous night's beatings. But in a twist of events, his own colleagues have called for management to reject his views, reminding him that News Corp itself has a similar clause in its workplace agreement. Alana, what is the News Corp House Committee and why would it have stepped in here? The News Corp House Committee is a group of, of journalists that represent the interests of, of the whole journalist body and they often have negotiations with with management regarding policies and, and those sorts of things. Um, look, I, I think it's it's great that they did say something regarding this because this is, um, you know, like you said before, News Corp um, are trying to get this same policy agreement um, into their EBA and it, look, it just makes sense for them to have said something like that. And it's one of those things where, you know, journalists defend journalists, so um, all power to them. News Corp journalists have actually put a lot of work into covering domestic violence, particularly the Herald Sun with their Take a Stand campaign. Does Tim Blair's blog diminish their efforts, Jenny? I don't think it diminishes their efforts, but I, I mean, I think, I don't know, Tim, Tim, Blair's, <laughs> Tim Blair's blog uh, diminishes himself. Um, and, I, you know, I think that um, the work of journalists who are covering domestic violence stories um that speaks for itself um his blog is kind of you know it's just a rant by internet comment isn't it yeah (laughs) it even looks like what year is it from i don't know it's it looks really unprofesh it hasn't been updated in a couple of decades (laughs) um and often it's just like a couple of lines like just a thought bubble um i think people understand that um he's Tim Blair has a particular um, personality um, and a, a lot of it is hashtag their ABC and, you know, just saying shocking things. We all know about shock jocks. They're all over the Australian media. Um, sure. But uh, uh, let's say aesthetics aside, is this a sign that there's still a lot of work to be done with tackling family violence in Australia? Of course, there's a lot of work to be done with tackling family violence in Australia with or without Tim Blair's stupid um, comments. Um and and but I do think that um, domestic violence leave is an issue that um, uh, you know I think it's actually good that people are talking about it because of his blog um, because uh, it is something that unions across the country across industries are pushing for um, in current um, enterprise bargaining agreements that they're doing with bosses and uh, I think it's a really valid thing. Although I, I think that the attitude of Tim Blair is unfortunately shared by quite a lot of people who think that um, it sounds like a silly idea um, that you would need a particular um, pool of leave to um, allocate to people who are suffering from domestic violence. And, and there is a perception that um, anyone who's uh, got problems and they need to attend court or go to hospital or um, have doctor's appointments or go to a counsellor because of a domestic violence issue, um, that they should just be able to use their existing sick leave or something to, to do that with. But I think... Um, you know, if we actually do want to tackle domestic violence, um, that this is one thing that workplaces can do um, to show that they support their 
staff and show that they take domestic violence seriously and that they want to reduce the stigma and um, and and I guess do their bit. And it's a huge task that we need to um, address. The Victoria um, Royal Commission into Family Violence findings um, showed just how big that task is. And you know, if if workplaces can do something to support um, their staff, then why not? I I mean, it seems like a no-brainer. Michael, more and more industrial agreements have domestic violence clauses. Why would Blair have taken such an issue with this clause in the ABC's agreement? Uh, why? Well, I can only speculate on on um, on his mindset. I don't really wish to step into into his shoes either. But um, I look. I think that you know he. Probably he has, as Jenny says, a record of attacking the ABC at um, any opportunity. And I don't know. I guess it was a Sunday, and he was scrolling something on the ABC and saw it. And thought, oh, this will make a great blog post, and so he put it together. And honestly, I think that's as much thought as went into it. I, I don't think he examined this issue very closely. I think he just thought this is this will be a fun, a funny thing for people on his blog um, to read and to sort of rag on the ABC and rag on you know. Um, the kind of focus on domestic violence, and I think that's that's. Oh, I also it. think that he um, he's just some guy that's quite out of touch. Um, you know, he's just ignorant. He's he's he clearly hasn't even heard of domestic violence leave, um, and and saw it, and and went oh ho ho what's this? Uh, you know, wasn't aware, uh, like he wasn't thought it was, he was something that the ABC staff had just thought up themselves exactly and and so he makes this big joke out of it and makes himself look like a giant idiot alana just very quickly on this one can the argument be made that this is actually a free speech issue look it is technically the the thing about free speech is that it allows people whose opinions you don't agree with um to voice them and um you know I, i think part of this is he's allowed to have his his free speech, but I think it's really turned against him because there are so many people that were horrified and um, by what he said. So free speech isn't always giving people power. Like I think, you know, in a way, it's it's good that he wrote what he did because we're having this really robust discussion and we're highlighting the fact that there is so much work to be done. Arguably, this is the way. To, I mean, free speech is about the government, isn't it? About the government stopping you from speaking. Mm. I mean, the public debate work, should work in this way, where someone says something stupid. And everyone turns around and says, you can't really say that. Like, that is a dumb, ignorant thing to say. So this is actually public debate working exactly as it's supposed to work. Free speech is not at issue here. You're listening he to Forecast off, Day. <laughs> Sorry, go on. He hasn't come off very well. I mean, if this was 50 years ago, he would be that guy in a pub in the corner with a beer and, you know, ranting about, you know, women starting to work and wearing skirts. And he now just has a little corner on the internet and it's amusing <laughs> for some. And I think most people just kind of feel sorry for him. You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're with me, Rafael Garcia, and I'm speaking to The Guardian's Michael Safi, The Ages, Alana Schetzer, and from Daily Life, Jenny Noyes. And going from one blog post that shouldn't have been written to comments that should have been left untyped. We all know how vicious online comments can be, but apparently there's a pattern on who gets attacked the most. Research commissioned by The Guardian on its 70 million online comments shows that 8 out of the 10 most abused writers are women and the two men are black. Michael, is it at all surprising that women are copying the largest amount of crude comments online? Uh, no, not really. I mean, the internet is a reflection of society, uh, and we know that we live in a deeply unequal society, and so um, it was no surprise to me at all that um, women, um, particularly women of colour um, and black men, were the ones who copped most of the abuse online. I, that was totally unsurprising. Alana? 
Yeah, not surprised at all. Um, I, I think this was a really interesting piece for The Guardian to do and and it will reflect other other media outlets as well. And um, often when we talk about online abuse, it's restricted to the individual who is subject of those comments. But this took it further. It actually looked at demographics, race, gender, um, and it, it's pretty disturbing. It's pretty disturbing, the findings, but not surprised. Do you think it could be that women are pushing more buttons than white male writers? No, I think they just happen to be women. And, um, you know, for people who shout that, you know, we're all equal, that feminism is dead, you know, people just have to go back, you know, 50, 60 years where women were not legally allowed to work. If they were married, they were allowed to be legally raped by their husbands. They, um, you know, go back 100 years again. They couldn't have property. So the idea that... Um, we're just more provocative instead of perhaps still trying to um, create a sense of equality is um, is just an excuse. It's a bit of nonsense. But also there's been studies done that, that um, you know, when people hear a woman say something compared to a man saying the same thing, um, you know, a, a woman will be seen as, you know, being bitchy or something, whereas a man will be seen as, like, asserting himself. You know, there's there's been a lot of this sort of psychology done, especially with women in the workplace um, and, you know, how female bosses are, are viewed. And, and if you're a woman who is writing on, you know, opinion especially um, or writing anything that might be vaguely controversial or even if something's not controversial and you're writing something that someone thinks is stupid or whatever, you know, people are much more likely to have a negative response to ju- just purely because you're female than, than if you're a male writer. Um, so, you know, I think that comes into it. But I also think that um, people who are not of the st- status quo will probably more likely to write stuff that is not of the status quo and that's like the good thing that's what why diversity is a good thing to happen in the media but it does mean that even if you're not you know completely militant in what you write that you are possibly going to push some more buttons because people are used to hearing um the white male perspective and anything that deviates from that um can sometimes be a little bit difficult for people to swallow I guess that's it from us on Fourth Estate this week. Thanks to my guests Michael Safi from The Guardian, Jenny Noyes from Daily Life and Alana Schetzer from The Age. Don't forget, you can subscribe to Fourth Estate on iTunes or SoundCloud or your podcast player of choice. And of course, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook and at 2SCR.com. My name is Rafael Garcia. You can catch us again at the same time next week.